0: Hello and welcome to Movies on the Side. This is Stephen
1: Robles. And this is Nate Baranowski.
0: And this week we had a very special guest come on the show to
1: discuss the 1982 movie The King of Comedy. We bring on video renaissance man Adam Lisagor to discuss this movie in great detail.
0: Neither Nate nor I had ever heard or seen The King of Comedy before reviewing it on this episode.
1: We discuss Robert De Niro's performance. We discuss all the side characters. We discuss everything.
0: And without further ado, here's the King of Comedy on Movies on the Side. Adam Lissagor. You are with us today. Thank you so much. Yay. Do, 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 that's
1: it. Bring in your own fanfare. That's right.
2: <laughs> it's my late night um, backup band. Oh, that's I, th- I was bad. trying to do kind of a carson kind of a Jerry, Jerry Lawler. Of,
1: Jer- Jerry Lang- Langford, Langford thing. <laughs> it is yeah. amazing to have you on here, Adam. In your own Wikipedia article, which I have perused, Inc. Magazine has called you the Martin Scorsese of online video advertising. Yeah. (laughs) And so it is amazing that we are doing a Scorsese movie this week. I'm sure Stephen has some actual intro things he wants to say. He's usually the buttoned-up one of the (laughs) two of us. Hit it.
0: Well, this week we're doing... A movie, I don't know if it's from 1982 or 3, because IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes now have a discrepancy.
2: Everywhere I've seen is 1982.
0: We're doing the 1982 movie starring Robert De Niro called The King of Comedy. Now, I will be honest, I won't speak for Nate, but I had not heard of this movie nor ever seen it before. So this was a first viewing for me. But Adam, you said this is kind of one of your... I don't know. You would enjoy talking about it. Can you just share what your history is with this? Like, well, how did you get exposed to it, and where did it come from?
2: So I'm 42. I was born in 1978. So I kind of got my film education while I was in high school and pre-internet days. So I, my my film education was going to the blockbuster video, mm. loading up on tapes that I would be curious about, not going for the you know the outer shelves, the perimeter where all of the um the hits were the blockbusters where they would have like 12 of the same movie, mm-hmm. but going into the inner shelves, you know, going to the classics, going to the foreigns, the indies, and picking out something from maybe, you know, everybody knew who Sc- Scorsese was, but maybe finding some of his earlier work. And I kind of knew at that point that I wanted to go to study film in New York. That's a pretty much hand in glove fit there. I wanted to, I had seen Mean Streets, I'd seen Goodfellas, I'd seen all of the, the Scorsese canon. But I was really curious about this interest like I think I saw a reference to it called The King of Comedy it's like funny it's weird <laughs> and I just decided to check it out but it's one of those movies I don't know if you've ever been exposed to a movie that smacks you straight in the forehead oh, unexpected man. you're not you know you're not you you're not prepared for it emotionally mentally and it just knocks you straight on your butt and this was one of those And so I'm assuming that I saw it at some point in the early 90s, and I never forgot it. But it's one of those movies I've seen probably a dozen times now, and every time you go back and and revisit it, it means something different to you. But your prompt was, Stephen, that I should maybe propose a disaster movie or just a bad movie. (laughs) And this movie is neither of those, necessarily. (laughs) Although there's a case to be made that it is a disaster movie.
1: Financially. (laughs) Right, right, right. Financially,
2: it is a disaster movie. Also, psychologically a disaster movie. Oh, my goodness. But it is indisputably not a bad movie. Some critics' minds it's one of the best... American movies ever made.
0: So for Nate and I, we're watching this much later in life. So you watch this at an as an adolescent? How did that hit you?
2: Um, it was weird, but I was kind of open-minded in that time of my life where I, I knew, like, as a person, as a, you know, early artist, I was pretty different from the kids I went to school with. So I was kind of hungry for less conventional mm. me- media. It, and this was actually, like, People probably don't give it enough credit for the time. I don't know when you guys came of age, but the early 90s was a fairly experimental time in in, in media. And there was like a lot of room for some weird stuff. Um, <laughs> I don't know. M- MTV had this show called Liquid Television at the time, which was like a half an hour of experimental animation. It was like pre-Adult Swim and it was the weirdest most challenging you know there was just there was a lot more room for weirdness and stretching in uh, stretching artistically in different ways yeah and i think that that was still a holdover from this if i'm being honest i think it was a holdover from the from the 70s where american cinema embraced weirdness right um embraced individuality and then the early 80s came out and Spielberg basically destroyed everything. (laughs) Uh, And film became tentpoles and franchise, and all of the weirdness got smoothed out of the system. But that's what's interesting about this movie for me.
0: Now, Nate, you had not seen this before yet either, right? And did you have any expectations?
1: I had no idea what to expect from this movie. (laughs) yeah, Yeah, I had never heard of it before. I was born in 88, and... I would say that my adolescence was mostly marked by not watching any movie that existed before the year 1985, uh, living somewhat of a sheltered childhood. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm spending most of my adulthood trying to go back and scoop up a lot of missing movies that when people said, you know, just like that scene in Scarface and I'm just, I nod and go, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, and and I know right. bits and pieces from just the cultural touchstones.
2: Sure. And sometimes that's all you need to know, to be honest, to get up mm. to have like the proper generalized film education. You don't need to go and actually watch Scarface because you know, Tony Montana, <laughs> <laughs> you know, say hello to my little friend. It's like right. the Cliff's Notes of tri- or Trivial Pursuit version,
1: right? I've seen the yeah, I've seen the scenes. Yeah, I, I yes. can't do the book the book report, but yeah, exactly. So I got to I got to this movie, and I tell you what, I'm really happy that I saw it today as a 32 year old man because <laughs> I really like. I'm not sure if. 12 year old me would have enjoyed this movie at all. (laughs) But 32 year old me, well, I, don't, I still don't know if I enjoy this movie, but I appreciated this movie.
0: <laughs> so we play a little game sometimes at the beginning of the show. We guess the Rotten Tomato score. And you also said that this was problematic for Martin Scorsese's career. So I'd love to hear about that too. But do you know what this is Rotten Tomatoes scored, Adam?
2: I have no. No, I don't. Like, I don't actually often look at a Rotten Tomato score. I used to sort of check out Metacritic sometimes. I don't know. I just don't pay em- enough attention to know. Are you going to say it
1: now? Or are we going to wait? Are we going to? Arenas. No, no,
0: no. We'll we'll say it now. Oh, okay. I was gonna see if you had a wild guess. I'm a, I'm
1: gonna I'm gonna guess. Okay, go for it, Nate. Okay. I'm gonna say that critics were at like eighty-four percent Rotten Tomatoes. That's my guess. <laughs> That's high. It is high. I'm gonna
2: it's, say like I'm gonna say thirty-nine.
0: Really? Ooh. Well, and that, this is also one of the prob- problematic things is I don't know if Rotten Tomatoes rates it much after the film release with a film this age. So critics the score on Rotten Tomatoes is eighty-nine percent.
2: Oh, wow. Whoa. Fantastic.
0: The audience score is 90. Whoa. So almost exactly even between the two. So again, I don't know when this was rated. It seems to be well-received now, today. But you said this was problematic for Scorsese. How was that?
2: Well, it it almost ruined, it almost killed his career because he had, and this, I'm just pulling this from trivia on IMDb, but he he basically had a couple of what they would call flops. (laughs) But, uh, you know, if you put, if you call Raging Bull a flop, then- You know, you can I say can I say swears on this show?
0: I'll probably bleep it out, but you can say it. Oh, okay.
2: He's a butthead. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's better. If it anybody who's anybody who calls uh, Raging Bull a flop is a butthead. So um, (laughs) because Raging Bull is an unqualified work of of cinematic genius, and I and. So then I think probably what happened was Scorsese had a crisis of identity Mm. and he made, he made a movie called New York, New York in the late seventies and he made Raging Bull and neither of those were financial successes. And then he, and then they spent 19 million dollars making this movie, The King of Comedy with De Niro and he put a lot into it. And it was a really grueling process to get into the emotional meal of this, of this, these characters. Hmm. And he came out of it totally spent thinking that he'd created a masterwork and then it was a financial failure as well. And he was basically at that point kind of on the brink of director jail. <laughs> so imagine if that had been the end of Martin Scorsese and there there had right. been no Goodfellas, <laughs> there'd been no Casino. Say what you will about the Irishman and all of the later works, but like... Gangs of New York was good. Yes, um, that one too. I've, Aviator. Those guys. All those things. All the great shows. But 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 what's really fun is that like I had, I had never seen his follow-up movie after The King of Comedy when he was going through his crisis of identity and it's called After Hours in 1985 hmm. and I watched it just a couple of weeks ago. I'm sort of obsessed with the year 1985 right now. Hmm. So I put it on and it's this super weird like of the moment one night in New York kind of story where a bunch of stuff goes wrong and it's awesome and weird, and, and it was a pet project. It was like a very low-budget, sort of no-name actors or, like, marginal actors, and it basically just rejiggered his whole attitude about making movies, and that ended up being an indie darling, like a, a critical success that put him on the right path again. Hmm. Now, I think that in his body of work, personally, I consider The King of Comedy his best, his best work.
0: Okay, so the movie opens, The King of Comedy and we see Jerry Lewis playing the character Jerry Langford, famous talk show host. And he leaves, you know, exiting out the backstage door and there's just this incredible crowd of people flocking, going crazy. And we see Robert De Niro bouncing around, trying to play cool, but also trying to get to him. <laughs> you know, I was painting this picture that Jerry Langford, the character, is just this incredibly famous person. And I don't know if we have that kind of context today. Like, I don't know if Jimmy Fallon would get mobbed outside of a talk show host. But for, even for me, it, I don't know if it seemed over the top, but it was a little weird first scene. But I don't know. What, what did you think, Nate? Because you were watching the first time.
1: It set the tone of, oh, this movie is going to be a little different. Than what I expected it, uh, especially when it uh, Masha is the one who's who gets in the car and is like right. smashing it, and it looks more like a walk, a Walking Dead uh, start of a movie, <laughs> and and then it freezes yes. to her hands on the window, and then that, that's just <laughs> credits the whole way. I was like. Oh, we're in for it here. This is this is going in.
2: Yeah, you're in. You're in. Strap in because you're going to go into a place. And and it's like that freeze frame of her hands on the window yes. with Rupert looking in the window. And um, it's in it's when a flash bulb has just gone off. So the it's even more surreal. The scene is now lit by a flash, and you hold on that as these super stylized, <laughs> blocky, you know, pretty modern designed titles come up and. List the credits and everything while um, Ray Charles,
0: yes, come rain or come shine, plays. Right. The title slowly drops in from the top too, which yeah, it takes, exactly. I feel, like, I feel like it takes a full five minutes for the title just to drop.
2: Right. Well, because back then, like in the olden days, people had patience for such things. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah. I love that. You know, you had to savor it. And one other thing I wanted to mention. Is at the very beginning of the movie. It starts. We 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 come in on the TV show uh, on mm-hmm, Jerry Langford's right. TV show. We don't start with the movie.
0: The and little old me and Hurley. And now say hello to Jerry.
2: And that um, that separate or that distinction between film and network TV is made clear very very quickly. In the same way that. I don't know if you have you guys heard or seen of a movie called Network from the late 70s? No. No. Um, there's so the old movie called Network about a, a newscaster, an, an old seasoned newscaster who kind of fed up with the state of the world and goes haywire on air. <laughs> and the famous line is, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Oh. And it became this rallying, you know, post Nixon uh, rallying cry for <laughs> the 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 rapid decay of of culture in this or in this of civilization in the U.S. But so much of that story is played out through network TV and the aesthetics of of, of network television, and it's so like crucially important that they shot the Jerry Langford show. Like they would shoot an actual late night program in in the early eighties hmm. aesthetically, it made all the difference because it brings you into that world right away. Right.
1: I even had the thought of oh this is is this actually going to be Jerry Lewis playing Jerry Lewis and coming out on some right. show right <laughs> because I, at that point in time, I was like, maybe he's playing himself, but it really takes you right into that like late night talk show
2: yeah, you're in the world, like right away you're in the world, and then crucially. When you're out of the world, there's not that much separation. You there's there's a a really fine blending of TV world and and Rupert world, hmm. film world, and and it jumps back and forth between reality and fantasy quite um, deftly. Stephen, can I ask you a question? Yes. When when I proposed The King of Comedy, and you maybe looked you googled it and looked at a poster, you know the poster image or something. What did you expect that the movie was going to be?
0: I have no idea. I think when I searched it, I saw like a two line synopsis. Mm-hmm. Which was basically like Rupert Pupkin wants to be on a talk show, so he kidnaps Jerry Langford and holds him for ransom to be on a show like that was the whole synopsis that's it that was it
2: that's it, and back in nineteen eighty two you could sell a movie like that you could sell, <laughs> that was the that's the log line, so you go into the executive you know studio executive's office and you say some weird idea like. Is, you know, a guy kidnaps a late night host so he can be a famous comedian. Right. And they're like, it's weird. It's sticky. It's got
0: criminal element. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, it was so bizarre because after reading that, two-line synopsis kind of by accident, because I don't like sometimes going knowing what's in the movie before I see it. I was kind of waiting for the kidnapping the whole time mm-hmm. and expected Robert De Niro's character to kind of be menacing. <laughs> and we could talk about how he turns out later in the movie, but it's weird because in the first scene, you know, he's playing it cool, but you can also, in the big crowd, you understand that he doesn't have the social norm radar to understand like you can't get in the car with jerry lewis (laughs) but he also like works out this plot with the girl which i don't know the relationship with the girl i don't know if it's just a random friend or what but to like work that out where she's going crazy robert de niro can look like he's helping jerry langford and then just get in the car with him it's like okay he's a little off he doesn't get exactly what's happening here but he also has enough wits to get himself in the car with Jerry Langford, and I was like, "Yeah, he doesn't seem that crazy, at least yet."
2: Well, I I would argue with you on that point. I think he seems super crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I am with you. I did not know what where this movie was going. I did not see a single line on it. And when he got in the car and started doing his thing, I think to the wonderful the acting chops of Robert De Niro, there is a type of like slightly out of hinge. That he comes across (laughs) where I definitely had the thought like, Jerry, Jerry, get him out of the car. Do not let him go back (laughs) to your apartment. And this is before I knew anything about this movie. And it comes across so aggressively like pitching himself that I was uncomfortable, which I think can be said for 90% of this movie. I watched it wanting to kind of look a little bit to the right of the screen so I could kind of absorb it with my peripheral vision, (laughs) yeah, but not actually like look at it straight on because it's a lot. Well,
2: because what this film does is it sets your expectations and then it subverts them Mm. over and over and over and over again. And whatever you were expecting in the beginning, like let's, you know, in context of movies in that time, in like, let's say the early 80s, you know, 80s comedies, it was a common trope that like, You know, a funny comedian of the day goes in and goes does some sort of an ambush or a heist or something, and like has to rescue his family by hijacking a car salesman or something stupid (laughs) like that. You know, Mm -hmm. John Candy, Bill Murray, like all those guys, Chevy Chase—they would all do these this type of movie. So you're you're sort of maybe if you read the logline that a comedian hijacks or or kidnaps a late night host, that's maybe what you're expecting. What you're not expecting is there's a whole Like a whole exploration of of mental illness at play that you really have to come to grips with very quickly. And at its core, this film is about mental illness. Right. And how our society, I guess, treats mental illness or... Uh, Struggles to deal with. Yeah, struggles to deal with it. Exactly. That's it.
0: It's weird because in the car, Jerry Lewis is actually very gracious in like the conversation like he even says like take your time you know you're very nervous you know, just- right
2: because he's a huckster <laughs> he's a showman and he's trying to get something he's a sociopath
0: and i love this one line that they say in the car where pupkin says i'm at the bottom and jerry says oh that's a perfect place to start <laughs> yeah exactly you've got to start at the bottom i know that's where i am at the bottom that's a perfect place to start but then when he gets to the apartment, if I thought there was any normalcy to Robert De Niro's character in the car, <laughs> once he won't let Jerry Lewis get in the building, like he keeps going back, he can't say goodbye. I was like, okay, something is definitely off here, more even than I suspected originally.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think that a lot of that is cultural context too. I think that that kind of a social interaction, as weird as it is and awkward as it is, I think it was probably a little bit more normal back then than it it is now. Mm. And especially in that part of the world. Like I lived in New York for a while and people are a little bit different in the big city. And early 80s New York City was gross and dirty and Mm. full of... Animal depravity, <laughs> you know, like not to be judgmental about it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not casting judgment on it. I'm just saying that was, that's the nature of what that, that time and place was. Yeah. And so I don't think it was that uncommon to come across that level of aggressive, yeah. aggressive social interaction. And you, you're, 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 there's this dynamic at play where you're meant to empathize with both characters at the same time and, and you're always being pulled be, between you know, empathizing with all the characters in a very interesting way. I even find myself projecting, you know, my own past with being in a desperate p- situation where you're trying to, like, let's say you apply for a job and you really mm-hmm. want the job or, or a date and you really want to, mm-hmm. or, you know, a girl that you, or, you know, a person that you want to, um, uh, you, you want to, you have romantic interest in and you don't know what level of, um, aggressiveness to apply. <laughs> and I think that this is just, we're watching somebody who doesn't have as much of a filter. Right for that aggressiveness
1: it's actually a brilliant way to show someone who desperately wants something because that is super relatable to all of us of this like you know we have that most of us have that voice inside that's like all right don't play it cool and don't be too you know like i desperately want this person to see my portfolio or i really want (laughs) this you know i really want this particular person to notice me but i can't come across as too desperate and what we see is rupert who with none of that uh yeah like you said none of that filter there that says like none of the decorum yeah hey yeah hey stop 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 you're actually they're getting uncomfortable now (laughs) right yeah Yeah. that's super relatable and speaking of people that i relate to and i think we have to talk about in a second i think the assistant kathy long is a saint (laughs) and I think she has the type of patience in this movie that I, I want to give her some sort of award for. I was like, oh, <laughs> right. You are the best and so gracious.
0: Well, I'll tell you what. As soon as you do start working again, why don't you uh, give us a call, and we'll send someone down to check out your act, all right? Thanks so much Mr. Jerry and I went over all this last night. Does Jerry know you work?
1: Yes. I don't think he does.
2: She's so gracious and she's so elegant and sophisticated and like she was everything that I feel like a certain type of like sophisticated New York elegance and femininity was at that point, Mm -hmm. like the way she dresses, the way that her her long, you know, her clothes just like easily drape uh, on her, like, you know, her thin frame and, and her hair is like that, you know tv commercial yeah. shampoo hair and the way she talks is just so refined and she puts him at ease <laughs> even though as even as he's like being voraciously you know aggressively needy towards her yeah right. she was um one of charlie's angels in the ladies
1: in the later uh, series I, I oh okay i did not know this
0: so after that scene on the stairs jerry Lewis was going in you know you do feel that you know, Rupert thinks he's getting closer to what he wants, but we know as viewers, Jerry Lewis has no intention of ever right. <laughs> listening to him again. But then we go into this weird, which you had mentioned before, is where it blurs the lines of Rupert's fantasy. Mm-hmm. And we see scenes of like him having lunch with Jerry Lewis and all right. this stuff.
2: Can I quote a line really quick as we, as you bridge over into that next scene? Yeah. Uh, Cause I wrote it down and I put an asterisk, asterisk by it. And um, Rupert Pupkin says in that awkward exchange in front of his apartment, he says, "I'm a little short on cash, but if you don't mind just appetizers, I'd love to take you to dinner sometime."
0: <laughs> yes. What
2: a beautiful oh, line that is. Man. is. Right.
1: "I'm a little short on cash, but if you don't mind just appetizers, I'd love to take you to dinner sometime."
2: He has no idea how to conduct himself <laughs> in this in this act of social uh, you know, social graciousness is like, you know, Jerry. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful and and then we seamlessly cut to that imagined lunch that they're having, right?
0: Right and took a second for me to realize that this is not real. And then, you know, every other scene after, because we have lots of these fake, you know, fantasies for Robert De Niro's character. But what I think is so interesting is shortly after that, Robert De Niro, he's having his fantasy... And then we see Jerry Langford in his apartment. He gets a prank call from the lady. And it's this dichotomy of, you know, Pupkin idolizing the life that this talk show host has and how amazing it would be. And then we see Jerry Lankford, and all he wants to do is like chill out, and he has to deal with a prank phone caller <laughs> in his apartment. And it's like Robert De Niro's character doesn't understand what that life actually is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He has to project, project it all from his, his very minimal exposure to it. And this was a time also, remember, Remember, this is like you no know, Instagram. Very, you know, you <laughs> right. know, they people collected autographs back then. There was no selfies. You know, like there, there was <laughs> right. it was it was so weird. And there was this different type of celebrity worship. And that's why going back to your original question of how plausible is it that Jimmy Fallon walks out of the backstage and is swamped with adoring fans? I think it's pretty plausible. First of all, back then, it would be like, if those adoring fans had literally no way of engaging, there's no parasocial relationship hmm. with, with their celebrity crushes. They have to go there and sort of be there in person or watch them on the show. Hmm. And I think that, that that becomes plausible. Also, it's very concerning how little security there, <laughs> there is.
1: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> like one guy. <laughs> yeah. one dude
2: yeah one guy who doesn't look very good at his job no the one dude
1: i have a question for both of you and this is <laughs> a i want to pause and ask a somewhat personal question oh my and that is this it's a little would you rather <laughs> between a pre-social media era where you could get mugged for an autograph or like that lady later on saying i wish you had cancer on the street Oof. oh
2: yeah yeah, so weird. which came from a real um a real interaction Jerry Lewis had by the
1: way. Oh, wow. it, man, it it really made me be like, man, I never want to be I never want to be famous. <laughs> okay, so my question is, does that level of there's a mystique and people want to see you in person. Uh so you have to deal with all of that. Would you rather be that kind of famous or modern 2020 trolls on twitter and the kind of a bunch of dms on your instagram from people you don't know what would be uh the lesser of two evils and i would also yeah what the lesser of two evils or or what do you think you would rather handle is that people on the internet or people in person gathering outside your townhouse but right. you, Stephen, you answer
0: first. <laughs> I would have to say I would much rather deal with the internet trolls, as we will later see. You have risk of being kidnapped and ransomed by some person that wants to be on your show.
2: Yeah, but assuming uh, assuming that it's rare enough that they made a movie about it in this. That's
0: one. true, right? That's true. Right. What are the odds? <laughs> I, I mean, me being an internet person. You know, I enjoy the internet and and all that. I would take the bad with the good and I would go for the more modern.
2: Yeah, I'm going to give the opposite answer. I would much prefer the detachment. I'm a believer in the the power of the internet, but I also believe that, you know, especially in the last few years, we've seen how destructive it can be. Mm -hmm. So I much prefer to go back to a pre-digital, you know, more physical analog version of celebrity. Uh, It just feels... It's more illusory, but it feels safer to Mm. me.
1: Until two people show up at your house,
2: (laughs) yeah, but you can handle them. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That butler didn't handle them. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that guy was great. So after these fantasy scenes, now we see Robert De Niro's character going to the office, seeming like every day,
2: right? Because Jerry promises him to basically get him off of his get get him to go away. He says, "Just you know, call my office, talk to Kathy Long."
0: (laughs) Right. And I wasn't sure like how long we could stay in this office scene and it still be engaging. But there's this incredible tension that starts building Mm. after every interaction that Robert De Niro has with a different person, (laughs) like whether it's the assistant or the receptionist and then the security guard, like there's just building tension that you feel Robert De Niro becoming more and more unhinged, like you said, Nate. And you're just like, what is going
1: to happen? And I have to say, this is a bit of an old man get off my lawn moment, but the difference between a movie that can take its time, like like, like this one. Versus a modern movie. This is the difference between us really sitting with him in the reception area. And as every second of him passing glances with the receptionist at the desk, (laughs) it's more and more uncomfortable and more and more a feeling of like... He is not supposed to be here. I start feeling a little bit of waves of anxiety of like, <laughs> oh, this is not good. Their graciousness is running out and I can feel it stretching. Whereas my guess would be that a, a modern movie in the, you know, in the last five years would make this a very fast montage mm-hmm. that would just be like yeah. showing him going in. Like it would get a, get across the same message that he's always there mm-hmm. Uh, and then he would be leaving and, and saying hi to the same person. And maybe it would even be shown as like a comedic, like it's Pupkin, it's Pupkin. And he would do some sort of repeat. <laughs> this one really takes its time and it's better for it because it is a slow process.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because modern filmmaking or mod- modern media has to prioritize the efficiency of communicating an idea Hmm. because well for many reasons but aesthetic reasons but i think mostly it's um due to an awareness of our of our short attention spans and you know Hmm. media has to do everything it can to capture our attention quickly Hmm. and convey what we need to know right away but in the olden days (laughs) <laughs> you know, people. Did, people were going to sit there in the theater, and and you know, just put them put them in a situation and let them feel what they're going to feel. And I think Scorsese is the, is such a master at creating a landscape where the emotional emotionality can sort of like unfold on its own. Mm. And they're not. He's not telling you what to think or feel. He's not. He's not indicating for you to get it over with quicker. That you're supposed to feel tense and awkward. He's putting the camera and the characters in this situation and letting them play at each other. Hmm. And then you feel what you're going to feel because it is because he earns it. Right. And, and like, it's, it's refreshing to see that kind of thing. If you, if you can withstand it, you
1: know, if at this point in time in the movie, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Steven, as, as watching it for the first time, do you like Rupert? (laughs) Is he likable to you?
0: (laughs) You know, it's, he's funny sometimes, whether he intends to be or not. Like, there's a line I wanted to pull. Like, <laughs> yeah. even the character name Rupert Pupkin. Like, I've struggled to even say it as we record. And I have it written. It's right in front of me. But it's such a good name. And there's a line where Robert De Niro says, it's usually mispronounced and misspelled. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> 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 this guy's pretty funny.
1: Pupkin, P-U-P-K-I-N. People often misspell it and miss. Misspell- it.
2: But also he doesn't know he doesn't know that his name is funny either. I think he just right. <laughs> because it's somebody asks him what's his real name and
0: he says, That is my real name. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right and I unaware. As he's like doing going back and forth to this office, I oh, I admire somewhat his drive to succeed. And I feel like in today's culture, that's kind of what you're told you need to have. Like you need to have that nonstop persistence. Whether it's posting a hundred times a day, like you have to be on it all the time, and almost not pay attention to how many likes you're not getting, you know, you have to just keep doing it.
2: Yeah. So what you're saying is Rupert Pumpkin is going to crush it <laughs> in, in
0: 2020. <laughs> he might crush it. I
2: don't know. Yeah. He's on his grind. He's definitely persistent. I would say that I don't like him, and I don't think the, the audience is meant to like him. But at the end, there's there's sort of um. There's a moment where we realize who this guy is and then we feel for him at least, you know? Yeah. You, you understand
1: why he's this way. Yeah. Right. There's a a bit of understanding like you said earlier Adam, the the theme of mental illness. And I think as it circles back around to where his delusions or his fantasies really influence, I think for me it happened when he went to Jerry's house uh <laughs> with Rita. And like at some point in time, you go like, "Oh no, this is too far." Like truly harmful for you, and it circles back to <laughs> sympathetic in a way. But I never quite got back to likability. But it it was a, a really interesting tension of like, "Yeah, man, this is." I feel for the people that have been hurt because of you, but I also know like you can't help it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll circle back around to. My feelings about him because I feel like the last monologue shapes so much. Like it's the last thing you see of him, and so I don't know that shaped my thought. But one before we get to him going to Jerry Lewis's house, I just want to point out the scene where he's trying to make his demo tape <laughs> because the assistant tells him like just bring, just bring a tape. And it's, you know it's like the the canonical like oh yeah send your tape we'll we'll listen to it. And his mom's like yelling from the upstairs who we never see we never see her face always hears her voice. It's just a. I don't know. You feel the tension even in that Play, scene.
2: Played by Martin Scorsese's real mom. Yes. Later, oh. <laughs> who was also in Goodfellow.
1: <laughs> so good.
0: In the new Rupert! King of Comedy. Rupert, i oh, crazy? What's the matter with you. Oh, ah, mom. People are sleeping. Lower
2: it. Yeah, I mean, because he lives in his mom's basement. I don't know if you t- right. tend to enumerate plot points as you as you go through your episodes, but P- Rupert Pupkin is a very desperate
0: it's usually mispronounced and misspelled. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. He's a sad
2: character that has set up a whole sort of mock mock set for himself, like a late night show f- um, for himself, complete with cardboard cutout celebrities in the basement. Oof. And Liza Minnelli's there. <laughs> Liza's there. Dr. <laughs> Joyce Brothers is there. You know, all of the celebrities of the day. And it's it's so exciting to see this guy sort of desperately craft this fictionalized world around himself because this is his obsession. Yeah. And I think that that's what, that's why I forget who asked, why do he and Masha know each other? Well, because they're similarly fixated on this Mm -hmm. one guy, they're both in the same fan club and they sort of rely on and depend on each other for that. I don't think they like each other at all, but they need each other because they're similarly, similarly obsessed with the same thing.
0: There's a line early in the movie when they're all in that big crowd and (laughs) Robert De Niro says, it's not my whole life. It's not my whole life. Like yeah. I'm trying to make her feel bad. Yeah,
2: I'm really not that It's not my whole life.
0: What's that supposed to
1: be? that's my whole life, Mayor It's not my whole life.
2: Yeah, he's he goes, I'm not wacko like you. Right. Yeah, like, she's she's like an aware stalker and he's a, like completely
1: not self-aware.
2: Right. Cause right. he's a he his his version of himself is that he's a careerist. He's on the path to something great. And he doesn't realize how delusional that really is. And then this movie unfolds as though it wasn't delusional at all.
0: Right. Which, yeah, and I, I want to talk about the ending later. I think actually before they even get to Jerry Langford's house. We're going talk about Rita, aren't we? We're well, mm-hmm. talk about Rita? <laughs> so the one, yeah, the one character we haven't talked about yet, Rita, which I honestly wasn't sure if she was real or not for maybe half the movie. Yeah. I just, I, I didn't know, like, is, was, is someone actually talking to him in real life? Or is this a fantasy also? But I guess this is like, I don't know, a friend. Romantic interests. She was his high school crush. That's right. And I think that's that's the moment where you sort of first
2: get a glimpse into his psychology, which is that holds on to this time of his life um, in a very strong way. Like he has mm. almost it's it's almost an arrested development. <laughs> he has he kind mm. of is stunted past the his his high school. You don't quite know why, but you know it can't be good, right? Right. You can imagine, I, and I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to take a stab. Have you ever known somebody who was a little bit off in ways that you couldn't piece together, but reminded you a little bit of Rupert Pupkin?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely.
2: Perfect. Yeah. Sure. And again, no judgment. Um, it, it is what it is, and it takes all kinds. But. I've, I've known people like this that similarly obsess with a time in their life that they can't seem to have mentally moved past. And I think that when you start to understand that he, the first thing that happens, the first thing that Rupert does when he's hit this big break, which is that he got in a car with Jerry Mm. and was told to go, you know, call his office is that he goes to where he knows his high school crush was. Right. And he tells her, I'm going to take you out of this place and I'm going to turn your life around. You know he's got this whole fantasy that was waiting to un to develop um until this particular moment of his of his career his imagined career and and then you start to piece together how sad that is right you know basically she's an aunt he's an aunt to Rita, who was by the way played by Robert de Niro's actual wife at the time.
0: Wow, it sounds wonderful, Lupin I wish you the best of luck, you know, but it's getting late, and I'm a working girl I gotta go home
1: i I don't get you. Here I am offering you a way out. I, I did have a question about Rita in this because in some ways I feel like she doesn't give him the time of day, or they have that that sit-down and he does kind of his old his old stuff where he has his own autograph and she's like, Ugh, you're the same as you were back in high school right. that stunted growth. But then uh-huh. at that time where they when they do start going on this trip to go see Jerry. She seems a little bit more into him again and I wasn't quite sh- I couldn't quite read Rita as to <laughs> does she actually like Rupert? No. No, she doesn't like
2: him at all but she's humoring him and she's kind of fascinated. And I think that there are little hints at her character that she's the kind of person that will go along. Mm. Right. She's just kind of curious. And she's kind of thrilled a little bit that she gets to go and potentially meet a famous person. Right. yeah that's
1: true. That would be a bit of a draw
0: <laughs> in talking about being like stuck in the high school phase when he has the fantasy of marrying Rita on the Jerry Langford show, yeah, and it's just so it's bizarre, but when they step up to the priest guy or whoever's about to marry him, it's his high school. what was it? is it was a high school It's old principal oh it it's
2: old principal old principal, yeah George Cap. Who's now a justice of the peace. Like if you were <laughs> literally, if, if you're 11 years old and you're thinking like, what's the best way that I could show everybody who doubts me that I'm the king of the world? That's probably something you come up with is that yeah. your high school principal has to apologize to you or, you know, mm-hmm. your junior high principal has to apologize <laughs> to you on air and then marry you to your sweetheart. Right.
0: We like to apologize to you personally and to beg your forgiveness for, for all the things we did to you. And we'd like to thank you personally, all of
2: us, for the meaning you've given our
0: lives. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I feel like at least when you're in high school and maybe shortly after, you hope that that might actually happen, at least from one person. Like, maybe it's the one guy who bullied you, (laughs) or the one person who treated you wrong. Like, you think, maybe one day they'll see the error of their ways, and I'll somehow communicate... They'll see
1: my success. They'll see
0: my success, but I'll somehow be able to communicate how they hurt me, and they will genuinely apologize.
1: I think as we move past high school, for most of us moving into college and into early careers, uh, not to get too sappy and deep in this moment, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but... I really think there's something relatable that we all have this hope that, like, the people that doubted us, that we don't need to, like, we grow past the need for them to make an apology for us. But there is, like, that part of me <laughs> that I can relate to, man, I hope they see that I'm doing well or, you know, an ex-girlfriend or somebody is like, oh, I kind of hope that they see that I am happy. <laughs> and they go, "Oh, right. what a catch. Right. I missed out on him or <laughs> oh, I guess he did have a lot of potential deep inside."
0: That superlative wasn't meaningless.
1: I think that I think that in
2: Rupert's case though, he needs everybody to feel bad like for what they had done to him because it's clear that he's been damaged in a, in a lot of yeah. big ways. But that he ties it all to his high school days. And in very early in the movie when he when he like chases uh, Jerry down in front of his apartment and says, we're going to have lunch. I'm going to take you to lunch. And then we cut to fantasy lunch. The very first thing that he's imagining for his, his own story of this lunch is that Jerry is now less than him. Like Rupert is the more famous one. And Jerry is in a place where his career is going south. And he's just like, Rupert (laughs) teach me the way. And so it's not, you, you sort of like get a a real story clear sense of his motivations very strongly. It's not that he idolizes or worships Jerry. He actually resents him, Mm. and he thinks he's better than him.
0: Yeah, that makes it even more creepy. It's creepy. It's it's really creepy stuff. So we make it to Jerry Langford's house— where Rupert Pupkin brings Rita and basically not breaks in, but lets themselves in past the butler. Jono? Was Johnno. that his name? Jono, yeah. yes. Yes. And you know from the moment they step in the house, like this is not going to end well. Like, you kind of have this sinking feeling the whole time. And eventually Rupert's like, oh, Rita, don't touch that. You know, oh, don't go upstairs. You know, we're not invited. And you could tell like even he understands this is probably a mistake. And when Jerry Langford walks into that house, his stone face for the first like ten minutes of yeah. the conversation—it's gold. It's gold, carrying
2: ca- carrying the putter, yeah—and <laughs> those short shorts, the short shorts. God, he just wants to get away for his weekend in his country home, <laughs> and now he has to deal with this crap. <laughs> oh, and no. this oh, is perfect. Man. And the and the like that everybody's thinking, everybody's in a completely different reality in that scene, and that Rita is still under the impression that this is all legit you know right that, right. that they're in, they're invited guests and it's just all all the little details apparently that scene took 5 days to shoot oh my goodness um, one of my favorite details is at the beginning when they're on the ferry uh Jerry and Rita are on the ferry coming to go visit Jerry and she says what do you think of my wig cuz she's got a wig over her right. natural hair and he's he doesn't like the wig and it's this first, it's almost like that first signal that this is not going to go, this is not going according to his plan. Mm-hmm.
0: Do I look okay? You look wonderful.
1: Does this look all
0: right? That I'm not sure about. But you look wonderful. What do you
1: mean? No, you
2: look wonderful. It's just like a little tiny character detail that puts you in his emotional state of dissatisfaction. The world is never going to live up to his fantasy version of it.
0: Pumpkin, they're yelling at this point, and he yells at Jerry, I made a mistake. And Jerry Langford says, so did Hitler. Yeah, yeah, And then we finally get to the kidnapping. You know, this is three quarters of the way through the movie. Having been the first line in the synopsis, I was like, you know, waiting for this the whole time. Strange kidnapping scene. And then like it really feels bad. Like it does not feel great having Jerry Langford tied up.
1: I disagree, Stephen. Because at this oh. point in time is when I had my first audible chuckle of the movie, <laughs> which is when he ties up Jerry a lot and there's just the physical comedy of jerry tied to a chair with a ton of tape tape,
2: yeah with paper tape
1: yeah that physical comedy just that moment of him just stone face yeah. like I can't believe this is happening to me by these two people.
2: He's just that's what he's upset about is just the inconvenience of this whole thing <laughs> by these two idiots. <laughs> he's
0: not a free, he's not fearing for his life. No, he's not. The cue card reading was hilarious, I'll give you that. And you know like he holds one upside down, one's backwards. Go back, go back one. Just real
2: quick again, this, there's this bridge moment between between the scene at the house where they get kicked out and then the kidnapping, um which is again it's another Scorsese slash Thelma Schoonemacher, the editor, this this signature technique. And I, in my notes, I put that this is the disaster. This is If this is a disaster movie, <laughs> where they get kicked out of the country home, that's the disaster. And then the next thing you see is a close-up of a gun. Yes. You know, it's just like, you know, other movies wouldn't do this. Other movies would sort of like transition from one idea to the next in a more <laughs> methodical sort of storied, Shaping way, uh, but this is just like smash cut to gun, <laughs> and then they're outside. They're they're in the car. They're waiting for Jerry to come out, and Masha says something so cool, which speaks to his her you know her obsession, which is when it's him, it doesn't look like him. <laughs>
0: right. Sure,
2: I'm sure it looks too much like him. Well, when it's him, it doesn't look like
1: him. I I have to come. I have to go back real quick to another moment that maybe you guys can speak to why it's so good because i can't quite put my finger on it but when he is rehearsing his monologue and he's in front of that black and white crowd and he he does this iconic he does this his he starts his routine you can kind of hear it but behind him is just a swelling wall of laughter that does not have natural breaks it's just uh, and i wrote down in my notes heroin (laughs) (laughs) there is some and as as the camera pulls back while he's talking in front i was like this is the most unnerved i've been this whole time i'm not exactly sure why but i'd love to hear you guys thoughts on that
0: It was an amazing just visual. Yeah. You know, it almost feels like a Joker esque moment. Totally.
2: Joker was inspired by, by this movie big time. Um, it's iconic. And, and when the camera pulls back far enough, it almost feels like that collage in the background of the black and white audience could have been in the, in like the MoMA or something like it. Mm. It's that iconic. And it's also sort of like culturally of that moment. Um, you could almost see it as in similarly that will, um, I forget which, which Woody Allen movie it is. It might've been eight and a half. You, you know, the famous photo from the Vietnam war mm-hmm. of uh, a U.S. soldier, po- or a, a soldier pointing a gun at a Vietnamese. Yes. Pointing it at his head. And it's just this gut wrenching, tragic image. But there's a moment in this Woody Allen movie where that is printed on a wall, very large, like as a permanent installation. And this, like, conversational, lighthearted conversational dialogue is happening in front of that. Um, that's that iconic image. The scene you're referring to with Rupert in front of that wall of black and white audience feels image-driven in that same way, where it's referencing, you know, media-saturated culture. And then the soundscape of the audience in this weird manic kind of applause, is laugh, oh, almost man. like laugh track crafting applause. I would agree with you. It is harrowing <laughs> with an underscore.
0: <laughs> Well, and I guess that's why when they have Jerry Langford in their custody or, you know, kidnapped, I guess after all those moments, it feels like I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. I, on one level, I still believe that Rupert really just wants to get on the show. Like, I don't think he wants to hurt Jerry. But Masha, like, Masha seems like the wild card. Like, she seems even more. And, like, when they put the sweater on Jerry, that like, the sleeves are cut and... They talk about how good it looks. Like, it seems like she's even farther gone yeah. than Rupert. And that that was uncomfortable making.
2: Well, she's got a whole deep history, complicated history of her own. Like, you know, she's definitely got mommy and daddy issues. She's been locked up. She's high society in New York. She's very wealthy. She's been locked up through her whole life in and out of, you know, therapist's office. She's never had a boyfriend. And she she invests all of her attention her love her her devotion to this one person that she should never have access to but right here we are and you know she, he's he's finally in her possession and we just get to we- watch that play out in the weirdest way mm. with the most perfect actor for this role like oh sandra, man, yes, sandra bernhardt she is she's an art she was like an art Art star I don't I don't think she was around in the, in the like the uh studio 54 days but or the warhol days but she was definitely she would like hang she hung out with Madonna in the early 80s right she was just this kind of fashion society art girl and she's always been you know I think she was part of like literal literary society too and she's just kind of like weird <laughs> and it's a shame that she didn't do other stuff besides this so much because she was so brilliant in it.
0: You know, sometimes during the day, I'll just be, I'll do the simplest things, you know, like I'll be taking a bath and I say to myself, I wonder if Jerry's taking a bath right now.
1: Oh man. Her actually having him tied up it had the feeling of like a cat that had been hunting a bird for years. And finally the bird is like <laughs> tied to the ground and the cat's just so like, I don't even know what to do with you now that I have you. Yeah. And that sort of... Uh yeah, she even says something about like the, the line of I have always been told to like yeah. be in control, be in control. But now I just like I want to just go crazy yeah. right now. And I want to to be out of control. And wouldn't that be fun if just me and you could uh just do whatever we wanted right now? And it is a really great monologue and really creepy with all of those candles, candles. Lit behind him. <laughs> oh, it's so creepy.
2: It's so creepy. It's very 80s mm. and she's so volatile. You just feel like she's going to snap and just like right, you know, put a dagger right into his neck at any moment.
0: But I love that his face is stone. He doesn't even <laughs> <Yeah>. flinch. <laughs> The
1: yeah. also the movie taking its time what does she sing that is it a, the ray charles song back again
2: she does she sings yeah <laughs> she sings it
1: a pretty good singing voice and right they just yeah. luxuriate <laughs> in that moment of yeah. the painful agony of her just like singing a soulful song to him while he just looks straight <laughs> ahead right.
0: I love during this whole time, the lawyers and the execs at the show are trying to figure out what to do. And you have these, like, let's just record them, just record them. And we just won't air it. And the lawyer's like, you're going to do it because it's, you know, Jerry Langford's life or whatever. I just loved all those interactions and the frenzy that they were in, in trying to figure out what to do.
2: Right. And even the FBI guys that they don't care about, right. the, the famous guy, they don't care about the TV show. They just have protocols. Listen, and, and you know, you, oh, you've been to Russia and you've been to China like that. You know, they're just they've got one job to do.
0: This man on the air.
1: Do you believe this? This lunatic is threatening Jerry's life and you're not going to put him on the air? Harry, Harry, let me handle it. Gentlemen, let's not get too excited. I don't think you understand. He
0: makes it to the recording and we see him take the stage and leave. And I at least had a moment where I felt robbed because this entire movie, there's the question of, is he actually funny? Right, right, right. Like, can he actually can he do this and actually pull it off? And for a moment, you feel robbed. Right, because
2: they don't give you the benefit of hearing the the act right away. Right. But I wanna I wanna highlight one moment before that happens when he first gets to the studio and he's kind of wandering around and he asks a cameraman because he's so far gone, he's a sociopath. He thinks that everybody there knows exactly who he is. Right. They, uh-huh. they, he can't imagine that they have their own internal lives. And he walks up to a cameraman and he says. I'm the king, and the cameraman says, <laughs> oh, hello, your highness, or whatever. Right <laughs> that gave me the, the le- legitimately only, like, big laugh that I have in this movie, even though it's ostensibly supposed to be a comedy, but you're not laughing.
1: No, you're not.
0: Be number 47, uh, hello, I'm the king. What? The king. What can I do for your highness? <laughs> really, I'm the king. Oh, yes, sir,
1: you're is backstage.
0: The guy that – I guess he was supposed to be a guest on the show. He was like selling a book. Yeah, the novelist, which was another kind of a red herring because for a
2: moment, for me – I don't know if you guys had this same experience. For when when that guy was trying to get through and he was na- – a novelist is supposed to be a guest on the show. And you can't tell for a moment, but maybe he's trying to pull one over on them too. And that yeah, that's maybe what I thought. Jerry's story is just one in a million of a lot of different people that try to mm-hmm. you know, hoodwink Jerry Langford's show, mm-hmm. which is kind of a funny uh, misdirect.
0: Yeah, it was, it was strange. I wasn't sure what it was about. But he gets the recording, and then he runs to Rita.
1: Again, back to prove to his high school sweetheart that, look, I've made yes. it. Watch this.
0: Turns on the TV and then goes into this monologue and it's one of these things it was constant mixed emotions because you almost want him to do well and you're also like this is a horrible way to have gone about this and also like how can he possibly be funny like he's he's not in his right mind but he and like you think oh, is he never going to leave the stage <laughs> is he just going to keep telling jokes for 3 hours like he <laughs> says goodbye and he actually does okay And I don't know, what was the feeling you guys had at the end of that monologue? And it's like, he kind of did it.
2: Well, it's still ambiguous because at, you know, first he just take he starts telling his hacky jokes and the crowd is laughing because they're there to laugh. Mm -hmm. And it almost sounds like a laugh track, but, but whatever, he's telling his hacky jokes and it's, it's late night TV and jokes are hacky and may you know, he's kind of a par for the course late night comedian. And then he starts getting into the darker stuff. He starts basically spilling the abuse, the, the, the tragic abuse that he's taken yes. for his whole life um, at the hands of his parents, at the hands of his peers, and that he's basically been beaten up and abandoned and abused his whole life and making comic relief of it. And the audience continues to laugh as though he's telling jokes about being from Clifton, New Jersey. And that's where it starts to get ambiguous. Oh, wow. Is this actually just still his fantasy?
0: Mm-hmm. I feel like I could tell he's not lying. Like, he's making fun of his life. And, again, you don't laugh out loud, but, he, you know, he says things like his mom, her alcohol was 2% blood. <laughs> right. And, like, these, these one-liners, and it's like, okay, he actually has some mind to make a joke. Like, it's, you know, it's not that he's just totally flat, not making any jokes and just being awkward. Like, he did the thing. He did it. Yeah. You know, when they tested her, they found out that her alcohol had 2% blood.
1: Here's the difference between a director telling you what to think versus letting you think it yourself, is that there is a different way to shoot this, where once he gets a little darker, talking about throwing up and talking about the abuse of his dad, there is a way to shoot it where the audience actually like you cut to an audience member and they start not laughing as much and they start feeling sorry for him Mm -hmm. kind of cueing you as the viewer of the movie to be like, Oh yeah, we're supposed to also be like, wow, this is getting, uh, he's really talking about his own life. This is really sad. But instead the laugh track maintains perfectly throughout the whole thing, just like it would in a late night show and it forced me to sit there and go like man he's talking about real abuse i'm feeling sorry for him but while i still hear this laugh track and i think that's brilliant because it doesn't tell me what to think and i'm left hearing laughter with my ears but feeling oh boy the heaviness yeah. of the moment
2: it subverts your expectation and you you end up being you know appreciating it for that reason it's almost like I don't know. I, I think it's it's kind of like how Quentin Tarantino in his movies uses music ironically instead of you mm-hmm. using music to direct your emotions the way that they would like sort of uh, presume to be directed. Like think about the scene in I don't know Reservoir Dogs if you've seen that movie where character is literally getting his ear cut off and you're hearing like the greatest hits of the greatest soul hits of the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> like this is a brilliant use of music or sound to subvert your expectations and make you kind of reconsider your emotional experience at the time you're going through it. I think that's exactly what we're getting with this, with the audience laugh track as well.
0: And then at the end, he said the line better to be King for a night than Schmuck for a lifetime. And I guess he obviously knows he's going to jail for what he did. Right. So he understands it was just, he gets one night to do this, but I'm curious, like what is the second part of that phrase about? Yeah. Like schmuck
2: for a lifetime. It's a very sort of like it, that, that expression is very Borscht belt, you know, old school New York comedian. Hmm. And it's the truest thing he says in the entire movie. And it just, hmm. it underscores his intentions, his motivations for this whole, this whole thing, this in, whole endeavor was about, Getting to this one moment and being king for king for night, which I end up, I think ends up being the title of his autobiography, right? That while yes. right? <laughs> right. in jail, yes. you know, cause he, he's somebody who feels like the schmuck every day of his life. He's been the, sh- the schmuck for his whole, his whole life. And this was his chance. Um, to take it and and, and turn it f- just for a night.
0: Yeah,
1: it actually showed some self-awareness like the most self-aware thing He said throughout the movie. It was realizing yeah, like hey exactly. I actually really need this one night Yes,
0: but look I figure it this way better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime <laughs>
1: But after this, yes, as it gets towards the end of the movie,
0: <laughs> it's not real, right? That's my question. We get this whole montage where he autobiography from jail.
1: Like I was thinking, like the book, the whole he's let out early. He does, you know, he gets all these deals. He's talking in front of people. I had the thought of, okay, this is we're gonna cut back to him just laughing at himself in jail or doing like a stand up right. comedy in the prison, right. But I wanted to get you guys' thoughts. It, was it real? Was it not? Does it matter?
2: Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I, I think that the ambiguity—the <laughs> ambiguity—is is the story. You know, like it's, mm. you know, if you really kind of want to get meta about it, um, that is exactly what a movie is. A movie is just a retelling of a reality that never happened. Hmm. And so we, it can be whatever we as the viewer want it to be. And if we want to believe that Jerry tri- or that Rupert Pupkin uh, triumphed over all and that's what we need to carry with us after the movie is over, then great. We get to do that. Um, if you want to believe that this is all just a, de- a dark, internalized depiction of what's going on inside the m- the mind of a rapidly degenerating, mentally ill man, then we get to have that too, <laughs> if
1: you want it. <laughs> Adam, Stephen, what did you want to believe?
0: I mean, you, to, you want to believe it's real-ish. But for me, 30 seconds into it, I was like... Wow, that's something. <laughs> and then the rest of the time I was like, nope, he's in a jail cell, totally talking to him. And so whether I wanted to or not, I did believe the reality was that that didn't happen, that he was in jail playing that in his head. You know
2: you know what I ended up thinking during the that whole scene, the sort of like epilogue? I, I just suddenly stopped and remembered that Donald Trump became the president of the United States.
1: <laughs> 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 and here we are in reality. All
0: right. Well- Adam, when we get to the end of talking about a movie, we rate the movie on a scale of zero to five something. For this one, I think we should do zero to five demo tapes, the <laughs> one that he records in his mother's basement. I don't know. Nate, why don't you go first? I'll go second. And, and Adam, you can tell us the, the correct rating. Uh, when we, when it's <laughs> okay. Right.
1: You correct us at the end. Okay. Yes. So I'm going to say, I'm going to give this movie, I'm going to say three and a half <laughs> tapes. And here's why. This movie is really, really well done. It is, like, I understand how if you were studying film, like, this is a good one to see. It is cringy a lot. (laughs) It is slower than maybe some people would like. It gets knocked down some because I never want to watch this movie again. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I really, like, once was fun, but... Adam, you said you had watched this movie like 12 times or so. I Yeah. That is great for you. That is not <laughs> that is not something
2: That that might mean it was more of an emotional experience for you than it is for me. Like I can sort of still have some detachment from it.
1: Oh yeah, it I went on an emotional trip with this movie and I didn't it will I think this movie will stay with me for a while. And I think that's a great thing. Like I think the movie did its job. Do I... Sometimes when I th- see comedy listed under a movie, do I want to laugh more? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> but it is, it is a very good movie. Three and a half is my total. Trying to be somewhat unbiased on it, but it gets knocked down because rewatchability for me is zero.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when comedy is both in the movie title and the genre, you think more it should be comedy. But for me... I'm going to give it a four on its own merits. I mean, it's it tells an incredible story. I will not want to watch this soon, <laughs> but maybe one day, you know, I think to return. I think if I had seen this at a younger age, it definitely would have left an impression, you know, maybe especially in high school, considering the connection. Um, I find it would be tough to recommend to people my age and younger. I, I don't know, like, I would really have to know the person can do it like can actually watch it and understand what's happening. So, because it's hard to recommend, and my rewatchability will be one to two in the coming decades, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a four. And uh, I will say, I mean, Robert De Niro. I've seen him in obviously lots of things, but his performance is pretty amazing. Like I, I don't think I've seen him in a character like this and yet sometimes i would forget that it's robert de niro
1: oh yeah i have to say it's it's the best robert de niro in my opinion i have ever seen in any movie
0: yeah and it's just like he was rupert pupkin for the time that i was watching this movie and i i'd never that never pulled me out like he never did anything to make it seem although there was a one scene i think where jerry langford like shakes his head in one of his fantasies like (laughs) slowly rocks it back and forth and i wasn't sure what that was about but i'm gonna give it a, a four four demo tapes so, Adam, what, what will you say? Excellent. Well,
2: without question, five out of five demo tapes for me. <laughs> it, it, you make an interesting point, Nate, that you appreciate that this is a, a good or even great movie, but you never want to watch it again. <laughs> there are two movies that I can say that about, One, both of which I think are absolute masterworks. One is Synecdoche, New York hmm. by Charlie Kaufman with starring <laughs> Philip. Seymour Hoffman a number of years ago, mm. so grueling, so gut wrenching. I, I watched it once. I fell apart emotionally. I'll never be able to go through it again. Um, and the other is Paul Thomas Anderson movie, The Master, the one about sort of a uh, L. Ron Hubbard Scientology figure. Mm. Both of those were so gut wrenching to watch that I will never do it again, but can appreciate their greatness. Mm. The King of Comedy, like I mentioned, I can keep an emo- keep a, a, an emotionally detachment from it. To the point where I still get a lot of entertainment value and a lot of appreciation for the craft which was made. And I think it even gets some bonus demo tapes from me because it almost ruined Scorsese's career because it was, (laughs) I've always wanted there to exist a class at the, you know, at some, at the college level or something called failures of the masters. Um, that'd be good. You know, I feel like it'd be so fascinating to see like all of these greats, whatever medium there was, and you study the ones that were considered failures, um, for whatever reason. And I think that, you know, now in retrospect, it's considered by a lot of people to be one of his greatest, um, movies. But the fact that it was considered a failure at some point. Um gives that extra credit for me. So I'm going to say, if I'm allowed,
1: six out of five demo tips. <laughs> you are the guest. You are absolutely yes. allowed to break the system. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes,
0: and I don't think we've ever gone above five. So there you go. First time. <laughs> six out of five. Six out of five. Adam, thank you so much for coming on, discussing the king of comedy. Obviously, you are everywhere. If you, if anybody wants to see what you're doing, should they follow you? Or, where should we point them?
2: My company is, it's, is called Sandwich at sandwich.co. Um, my name is my Twitter account, mm-hmm. something similar is my Instagram
1: account, but
0: <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. People, people find
1: it. you've been doing yeah. some podcasts or right? you are uh, in the all consuming podcast, right? Yeah. All consuming is, is, is
2: my new podcast. We've done, we're about nine episodes in, I think. Um, it's where me, my friend Noah Kalina and I both similarly fixated on products that are targeted to us on Instagram we we pick <laughs> so one good. product per week and we and we buy it and we review it <laughs> and uh that's that's all consuming at allconsuming.show uh like and subscribe and then the other one <laughs> is my 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 boy's uh, Scott and Merlin uh you look nice today as a podcast i've been doing for i think 12 years at this point
0: you had a hiatus in between
2: but- yeah there was a long hiatus there but once the when, when the pandemic happened uh, we sort of sprung it up again, and now we, we still do it.
0: Yes, it's wonderful. And I have to say, your all-consuming show is hilarious. I listened to The the Magic Spoon and The Ember Cup, and when your co-host, Noah, said that a single egg on his farm cost $20 to produce. <laughs> yeah. I laughed at that. Not the me. best thing ever. <laughs> that was hilarious. I would say, I don't know if you're taking requests, but— I am. The hollow Pillow would be a very interesting one to
1: do oh man Stephen. Stephen said yeah i got this pillow it's full of buckwheat you can remove and add buckwheat for your own thing it's gonna be great oh, wow. how long did that last Stephen, in your house before you returned it
0: 36 hours
1: <laughs> this does not
2: seem like a good pillow
0: but uh, you know what we'll try it out <laughs> well i'd love to hear it well again adam thanks so much for coming on the show we really appreciate it
2: thanks guys this is a real blast for me
0: thank you Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode with special guest Adam Lissagore. Don't forget you can follow us at Movies on the Side everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget we have bonus episodes every week if you support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash moviesontheside. And this week, we ask our special guest, Adam Lissagore, what does he think about mayo on french fries and his favorite movie of the last 10 years? If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a 5-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And like we always say... Better to be king for a knight than schmuck for a lifetime.